says, please come with your servants. And then he answered, I will. So he went with them. When they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water. And he cried out, alas, master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, where did it fall? This is Elisha. And when he showed him the place, he cut off a stick, he threw it in there, and made the iron of the axe float, the axe head. He said, pick it up. And so he reached out his hand, and he took it. It's a very strange story. It's a story about a group of people who needed to move into a new area. They had outgrown their current capacity. And so, uh, as you do, you know, there were no real estate agents in that day. For those of you who don't know, also, this is just a PSA. Uh, I'm not leaving the church. We're just selling our house and moving to a different house. It, so, so if you drive past my house and you see that there's a, there's a, a sign in the yard, it's, I'm not leaving. Don't worry. I'm, I'm not going anywhere. I'm still here. Um, but anyway, so when you, but when you outgrow your house, right, you move into a different house. But there was no houses on the Jordan, okay? So they had to build a new house. They had to go out, and they had to chop down a bunch of logs, and they had to build it. And um, axes were very valuable at that time. And so, uh, you know, it, I don't know if any of you play Minecraft. Eli, this is for you. Um, right? Like a wood axe that you can build at the early stages of Minecraft, doesn't, or a stone axe, they don't really work very well, but the iron axes, they work much better, okay? But iron's hard to smith. It's hard to, 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 to make, Okay, it's at that time it was very difficult to make an iron axe. And so it slips off, it goes in the water, and then he goes, Alas, master, it was borrowed. It's not even mine. And so I, my question for you this morning, and I need a couple, I need a kind of interactive here. Have you ever lost something valuable? Anybody ever lost anything? You just shout it out. Yeah, what? Ring. Oh, that's a good one. I had a friend in, in, in seminary who lost his wedding ring twice. I think Chris, Chris wait, I think that's a Chris's MO too, right? How many times, Chris, have you lost your wedding ring? <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, yeah. It's the number of perfection. He'll never re lose it again. Okay. Um, your marriage is, the, the, thou is, marriage is blessed. Okay. Uh, so uh, who else, who else have we lost? Anybody lost things? Oh, your mind, very valuable. Okay, have you ever lost anything that belonged to somebody else that was, that was valuable? Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, what was it? Anybody? You don't have to call it. Yeah, go. The, somebody's Bible. Yeah, if you had taken my Bible, this is my confirmation Bible. If you had taken that, I would be pretty, I'd be pretty sad. Um, so, so I heard about this story, okay? I thought this was the best example. Oh, yeah, I already I missed that slide. Whoops. Sorry, guys. Okay. Um, you, guys, <laughs> you guys ever heard this story? You guys know this story? No? Okay, I'll tell it to you. Okay. So uh, you guys know who Walter Payton is? Yes. Okay, great. Walter Payton, the greatest running back of all time. Don't talk to me about anybody else. He's the greatest running back of all time. He's running back in the 1985 Bears which is the greatest defense of all time, and the offense was just Walter Payton and sometimes Jim McMahon hucking one to Willie Galt. But, um, but, but Walter Payton was dominant at his, his era, and, and he only won one Super Bowl, okay? And, and, uh, and basically what happens is years later, Walter Payton is, goes to the Hoffman Estates. I think it's their basketball team. He's like doing a retreat with them, and he's talking about team, team leadership, 
with their students. He's at their one of these kids' houses, and he brings a Super Bowl ring out from the uh, the Super Bowl 20, 1985. And he brings it out, and he goes, he goes, uh, leadership, something like this. Leadership tr- requires ultimate trust. And so I'm gonna hand around this ring, and you can, you, you pick your team leader can hold it for the whole night. And at the end of the night, you give it back to me. Okay. And so the team leader was letting everybody, they're all trying it on, and this is super boring. Here, here's a picture of it. Okay. It's a, it's a pretty expensive ring. <laughs> and it, it's a sentimental value. Okay. It's Walter Payton, the best player on the team's Super Bowl ring from the year where the Bears went 15 and 1. Okay. Miami Dolphins. Okay. And, and the story goes like this. At the end of the night, Walter Payton goes, all right, give me my ring back. And they go, we lost it. <laughs> they lost it because high school kids are dumb. Sorry. Um, they lost it. And a search ensued, and they scoured the house, and they called in cleaning people. They called in the police. And everybody looked. And they, you know, I am reminded of the story of the woman who's so Jesus' parable. She sleeps, she looks for the whole house for the coin. Yeah, in this case, if the coin was worth more than the house, you really understand, right? But that's what happened with this ring. They couldn't find it anywhere. And like uh, 10 years later, I think it's like 2002, it's after Walter Payton had died of liver cancer. Um, one, a college kid, the, cou- the couch from, from that living room where he'd been passing around had been moved several times. And it eventually wound up being sold at a garage sale and, and in the possession of a college student at Purdue. And um, as couches do, they get turned, in college dorm rooms, they get turned upside down. They sometimes break. Um, they're disassembled. And, and in the disassembly process of this couch, which is just the natural state of a couch in a dorm room, the ring appears. And the kid finds it, and he brings it back, and he gives it, a really good kid, he gave it to Walter Payton's widow. And, and Walter Payton had had since another ring made. But, um, you know, <laughs> this, I think that in order to understand the story of the axe head, we kind of have to understand the story of Walter Payton's ring. Okay, because it's, it may be not that valuable, but it's a pretty good allegory, analogy. It's a pretty good analogy. Axe heads at that time were fundamental for life. And they probably only had a couple of them in the whole community, okay? When, when you lent somebody an axe head, you were saying, this is the livelihood of our collective community. And whoever took that axe head was charged with the responsibility to maintain it. It's the type of thing when you borrow somebody's car, you return it with gas, unless you're a jerk, right? When you return an axe, you return it sharpened. This is really a, an essential thing. You even look at how Henry David Thoreau's Walden, if you ever like American literature, he even talks about having to borrow an axe because even though Henry David Thoreau could basically live completely on his own, one thing he couldn't afford was an axe to cut down the trees for his house. Even then, in American history, axes were expensive. At that time, they were several months' wages for an axe. Several months' wages. And so you have this ring. And you have this weird story of the floating axe head. And you might say, like, okay, well, why are we talking about this? Because there's a lot of strange Old Testament narratives. You know, it's easy for us to jump forward into the New Testament and, and just immediately try and talk about, hey, what did Paul say? What did Jesus say? What is in the epistles? That's why we're doing this series is because we, we would read over a story like this and be like, 
that's weird, moving on, right? But this story tells us something very specific about God. It's very specific about God and how God does, how God works in the world. And so the Bible, yes, we can, we can look at this story in a lot of ways, but one way is to look at it as a story of economic justice. And that's what we're going to get to. Uh, I want to run through a couple other ways, though, that you can read this story, because I don't want to leave you hanging, especially if this is the only thing that you ever hear about the axe head. I don't want to leave you hanging. So here's, I, I did some research. I did a lot of research on the axe head. And, uh, and I came up, you know, you can, one thing is you can say, hey, weird stuff happened in the Bible times. Um, doesn't happen anymore, so it's just a weird story. It just proves that, that, that God's people can do miraculous things. Sure. And it could, okay, well, if God can make iron float, then, then God can make anything happen. If God can find something that's lost, God can help you find your keys, right? You can do that with this. The other way you can look at this, you could spiritualize the story and then apply it to our individual lives. You could say, hey, the axe head was lost, and therefore it became a tool without purpose. Perhaps when we are lost, we are tools without purpose, right? I've heard many sermons about that, and people, mmm, those sermons. They love those sermons, right? Another way you can look at it is you can read into it New Testament theology. You can say, hey, the axe head was lost um, in the Jordan, which is very specific because it's where Jesus baptized people. And just like the axe head sunk down to the bottom of the Jordan and was restored by being raised up out of the Jordan, so we are restored in the, from lost to found in the waters of baptism. And that it's a prophetic metaphor. Uh, and, then, and then you can read it, as I, like I said, as a story of economic justice. And I'm going to say this this way. We can read it as a highly contextualized oral story or myth pause on that word, don't, don't put, a, put a bookmark in it, I'm not saying what you think I'm saying, um, which, like almost every other story in Scripture, represents one thread that links with all of the other threads of Scripture to create the tapestry that we call Scripture. You can look at it as a highly contextualized oral story or myth, which, like every other story in Scripture, or almost every other story in Scripture, represents a thread which links to all the other threads to create the tapestry of Scripture. And so, like I said, put, put a bookmark on what I say. When I say myth, and I've talked about this, if you're from Hope, you, this is a time to go on Facebook, because I've talked about this a lot. Um, but when I say myth, I want to just, I want to I wanna take that word and I want to put it in context for you, okay? Because I think that we don't understand what myths are. A lot of times when you say myth, you say, okay, well, that means that John doesn't think that it happened. No. A myth is simply a story that explains a truth. Sometimes, I guess I'll say it this way. Okay, so a myth is a story that is, whether it is historically accurate or not, still explains the same truth. And so I think a lot of people get caught up on this because they go, well, well, if this is not, a, if, if this or another miracle in the Bible, if they didn't happen or if, if, I, if I can't suspend my belief to say that it happened, then it has no purpose or meaning for me. When in reality, that's not what Scripture is about. Hebrew people understood this way better than we understand this today. I learned this, actually, not even in seminary, in undergrad. I had a professor named Boaz Johnson, who's a highly celebrated scholar. He speaks over a hundred languages. And, 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 he, and Boaz, for some crazy reason, was teaching intro to the Bible to freshmen in college. I don't understand it. But the guy speaks fluent Hebrew and Greek. Like, he should just not be there, okay? But he's a goofy guy, and he just always talks about the movie Slumdog Millionaire. So maybe they just stuck him in the undergrad and let made, hey, you stay here. Um, but... 
But he explained this to me. I remember just, I'm, I come from an American westernized mindset. I was attacking him as we were talking about the Old Testament. I was saying, did it happen? Did it happen? And he goes, yes, it happened. And I said, okay, so you're for sure it happened. He goes, it doesn't matter whether it happened. I believe it happened, but it doesn't matter. For the Hebrew people, they don't care. I said, what? Like, wh- hang on. What do you mean, Boaz? He said, they would have understood a myth as true, regardless of whether it happened. And so, I want to point this out to you this morning. The myth of the story, this myth, this story, which true or not true is irrelevant, tells us something about the character of God. It tells us something deeply intrinsic to the character of God which is that when God sees hardship, God intervenes. When God sees hardship, God intervenes. So I want to say it this way. If we go back to the metaphor of, 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 of uh, Walter Payton, I want you to imagine, so, so the, Walter winds up being the, story, the hero of the story, not the kid who finds the ring years later at, at Purdue in a dorm room. Walter Payton's the hero of the story because Walter Payton, when he finds out that they don't have his ring, yeah, he calls, you know, they call the police to try and look for it. They call, they call cleaning services to try to look for it. That's a natural response to that. But he doesn't file a lawsuit against the kid that he gave it to. He doesn't, like, totally destroy the kid's life in the public sphere. He doesn't get up in a press conference and say, this child is horrible for losing the thing that's valuable to me. He says, it's okay. It'll be fine. I'll be okay. And that's because Walter Payton was a Christian and understood the ways in which God can restore things even when they seem beyond our control or capacity. Walter Payton, I'm going to say this once, and I'm not going to get into it because I don't understand bankruptcy law. You can talk to Nyeluk. From what I understand of the law, Walter Payton could have ruined that kid's life forever. There's no price tag that you can put on that ring that he could ever pay. There's no pain and suffering damages for the loss of one of the most sentimental items in somebody's life. It would have been over for that kid. And that, my friends, is what would have happened to the servant in the story of the accident. It would have been over for him. Over. He was a servant, which meant he had really no way of accruing wealth. There's certainly no way that he could have accrued the several months of, of, of resources of a, of a, of a non-servant in order to, uh, several months of income to be able to pay back for the accident. The moment that that axe had plummeted into the water, his life, economically speaking, was forfeit. Which is why the first thing that he says is not, Master, it's lost. He goes, Master, it's borrowed. They would have all understood. That guy, Dunsky. And here's the funny thing. Axe heads flying off handles represented elsewhere in the Bible. And I think that that has a point with this, because i gotta, I got to wrap up here. So 
I think that this is this this has a significant point because, like I said, because the story happened, right? So we're saying that the story happened, but the reason that the story so so this is what Boaz kind of eventually framed for me. With a with a with a biblical myth, you have to say the story happened because it's a metaphor. Think about that, bro. The story happened because it's a metaphor. So I, so he says, okay, so anytime you see a story happen, look for the other places the same thing happened, and they might be telling the same story. So I look back, Deuteronomy 19.5. For instance, a man may go into the, to, uh, to the forest with his neighbor to cut wood. Actually, in NSRV, it says to fell trees. Same exact words that it's used in 2 Kings. Um, may go with his neighbor to cut wood. If he swings the axe... To, hit, to fell the tree, the head may fly off. And instead of plummeting into the water, it may hit his neighbor and kill him. What a weird thing to have in the Bible. But it's found in the larger context of Deuteronomy 5, or 19, which, which is uh, verses 1 through 7. I want you to hear this. This is crazy in our American system. We would never allow something like this. When the Lord your God has destroyed the nations whose land that he's giving you, okay, so when you come into land, when you, when you have property of your own, when you have driven them out and settling, or settling into their towns and houses, set aside for yourself three cities in the land that your Lord and your God is giving to you that you possess. Determine the distance involved and divide these three parts of land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, okay? Set down three cities. For what purpose? Let's find out. So that a person who kills someone may flee for refuge to one of these cities. What? This is a rule concerning anyone who kills someone and flees for safety. Anyone who kills their neighbor unintentionally without malice or, 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 or forethought. Or forethought. I didn't know that's a word. Okay, great. Uh, for instance, a man may go into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood. As he swings his axe to fell a tree, the head may fly off and hit his neighbor and kill him. That man may flee to one of these cities to save his life. Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue him in a rage, overtake him if the distance is too great, and kill him. Even though he's not deserving of death, since he didn't do this to his neighbor with malice or a forethought, this is what I command you, to set aside for yourself three cities. God, in the story of Elijah and in the 19th chapter of Deuteronomy, which are very, very strange stories, is helping humanity deal with tragedy when nobody's at fault. We are terrible at this. In English, I talked about this a couple weeks ago too, we are particularly bad at this. When somebody knocks over a, 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 an item at your house, and they break it, what do you say? They broke it. Phil came to my house. Well, actually, he could say this about me. John came to my house and he broke my carpet. I actually did last week. Right? In Spanish or French, he would say, well, he wouldn't say this, but in, if I had, it was an accident, he would say, I was on purpose, I broke his carpet on purpose. But anyway, um, if it was an accident, he would say, the carpet broke itself. We are so bad at this because we don't understand how to deal with tragedy when we cannot blame somebody. We don't know how to, what to do. And so this story is a representative a uh, story for us of how do we deal with something. An axe head falling in the water because perhaps God didn't feel like making the metaphor solidified by having the axe head fly off and kill somebody. Instead, the axe head flies off in the exact same manner as in Deuteronomy falls in the water. It's another tragedy. It's going to end somebody's life. 
proverbially. But for God, there's always some measure of mercy within justice. There's always some measure of grace when you speak truth. And so, the story of the Axet is the story of Elisha saying to the man who could never repay the debt that he had incurred due to no fault of his own, it's going to be okay. Elisha, he does not, see, see, Elisha could have done a lot of things to fix the axe head. He could have magically created oil. This is what he did in another case with a widow. He magically created oil, and then she sold the oil to be able to buy food. He could have magically created enough oil to sell it and buy an axe head. He doesn't do that. He could have, like last week, he could have maybe called some bears in. They got these big mitts. Maybe they could swoop into the water and get the axe head out. Apparently, Elijah had control over animals. He was a warg. But instead, he says to the man, okay, before you freak out, just show me where it went wrong. And the guy goes, somewhere about here. And Elisha says, if it went wrong there, that's where I'll make it right. If you're just willing to show me where it went wrong, that's where I'll make it right. So my friends, the story of Elisha and the magical floating axe head today is a story that says a few things to us. This is where I'm going to wrap up. One, that God cares about things that we might not feel like God should care about. God cares about axe heads, not because God cares about axe heads, but because God cares about earthly economic oppression. He cares about ending cycles of debt for people. God does not jump to blame the same way that we do. God is transcendent of that. God does not get pulled into pointing fingers for the purpose of pointing fingers. God is a God of restoration, this is an important one, without continuous consumption. See how God, he, he doesn't say, look, and many axe heads fly off, that's okay. They'll just litter the bottom of the Jordan, we'll just keep buying new ones with oil that I make. He says, no, no, no. What was lost will be found. No need to get another one. God is a God who does not let the worst thing that has ever been done to us or the worst thing that we have ever done define us. And so, I invite the worship team up. I encourage you this morning to be a person who cares about the things that God cares about. Care about things that God cares about, even if it doesn't feel like things that you have normally cared about in the past. Care about cycles of debt. I talk to one of our leadership team members about this all the time. The church, we preach a really good game about saving souls. We preach a really good game about uh, a lot of things, about service. We preach a really good game. You know what we never talk about? Consumer debt cycles that keep people enslaved and in poverty for generations. Care about that. You see a neighbor in that, help them. Figure it out. Help them out. 
God cares about people's entire being. He does not want people to be physically incarcerated or economically incarcerated. Care about the restoration and forgiveness like Walter Payton rather than just pointing a finger of blame when you don't need to. Be a person who in this season, which seems to be all about getting more and getting more and getting more and getting more and getting more, be a person who cares just as much about restoration as continuous consumption. And finally, be a person who cares for people that the world has cast off. Be a person who looks at people who regardless of what they have done, whether it was accidental, whether it was a response to something that was done to them, whether, no matter where they are, if they're on the street, if they're homeless, if they're economically enslaved, if they're incarcerated, sometimes incarcerated for things that we can't even imagine doing. Be a person who looks at those people and goes, you're not the worst thing that you've ever done. You're not the decisions that you've made. You are a child of God created in the image of God. And because of that, I love you. I'll walk with you. I'll do whatever I can to go get that accent and pull it back up so that the very place where you lost it all, you might receive that grace. It's a weird story. It's a countercultural story. But friends, it's a biblical story. And the Bible, full of strange things, is just as strange as the lives that we live today. Let us look for the ways that we can embody it and do likewise. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God that cares about justice, that you are a God who cares about economic oppression, that you are a God who cares about lost things. Lord, perhaps this morning the message that we needed to hear was that we are the accident, that we're at the bottom of the, of the river and that we need to be dragged up. Lord, maybe the message is that there was a time in our life when something happened to us that, that, was, that was catastrophic, and maybe it wasn't our fault, or maybe it was kind of our fault. Maybe we felt the axe head slipping, but we just didn't take it seriously enough, and then boom! And you got to come in and bring it back. Lord, you are a God who from the beginning of time has been a God who cares about whole people. And so let us not be judgmental. Let us not see people in the wrong light. Let us see people as you see them, perfect and created in you.